So if you've been here any amount of time listening to my messages, you know that I will say again and again that that this book is unlike any other book known to mankind. This is a book that claims to have divine authorship. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy, makes the statement that all Scripture is God-breathed, suitable for teaching and reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. A claim that God is the author of this book. Now, it's one thing for somebody to make that claim. I mean, frankly, you could pick up any book that you wanted to and say, God wrote this book. So the claim itself isn't what makes it unique. It's the fact that it backs up the claim. That there are many instances where there are prophetic statements captured sometimes years, sometimes decades, sometimes centuries before they are actually fulfilled. But when they are fulfilled, you cannot deny that God's plan is in process. And so this book is different. This book, written by God, declares things that we see coming into fulfillment, things that we need to be aware of as we seek to understand what it means to worship God. Because we have to understand who we are, and we have to understand who he is if we're to worship rightly. And God makes it clear very early on, the first couple of chapters of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, that this righteousness that this book is called to draw our attention to is something that we fail on. We see from the very beginning Adam and Eve being deceived by the words of the serpent, living sinfully and not righteously before God. And so it makes sense from that standpoint to know that the primary battle in this book is not going to be a battle against flesh and blood, but against sin and unrighteousness. And we see that set in motion as early as Genesis chapter 3, where there is this promise made by God of one who would come and with his heel crush the head of the serpent, while at the same time being bruised by the serpent in this act of salvation. God speaking already that he has a plan for dealing with our unrighteousness. The rest of the book is an unfolding of that promise, how it takes shape, what that promise keeper is going to look like, if you will. Moses captures one of the first glimpses that we get of that later on in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, as we are looking for who that crusher is going to be, Moses writes this, The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. And when I will put my words in his mouth, he will tell them everything I command him. So as we look for the one to come, we see there's this promise of a prophet. At the very least, equal to Moses, if not greater. So that's the first thing that we're looking for. Not some nondescript person coming along, but somebody as great or greater than Israel's greatest prophet. Okay. Well, the scripture gives us more to go on. In fact, it 
Isaiah, perhaps the greatest prophet to look to as we try to understand who this one to come is going to be. And Isaiah writes these words, and I read them to start our worship service off. He says, For unto us a child is born, to us a Savior, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And so Isaiah lets us know that what we are expecting is a very wise king, one with an eternal reign, who will be right and just and filled with peace. Our expectations are building, aren't they? As we hear what Scripture tells us is to come. Isaiah doesn't start there, though. He, he gives us more to go from. He says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So it's not simply an eternal king, but it is one whose glory will bring light to a darkened world, a lost world. Isaiah then tells us this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. Not a normal birth, but one born of a virgin's womb, who will be called God with us. Now, I don't know about you, but if those were the verses that I had heard proclaiming the coming of this messianic figure, this Savior who would come into the world, be God with us. My mind creates some rather spectacular expectations of the birth of that child. I am expecting fireworks, frankly. I am expecting some kind of light show that pronounces for all the world to see upon this birth, hey, the one I talked about, the one I promised you is here. I am expecting the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, something bigger, surrounding this birth, singing with angelic voices, announcing it. I am expecting royalty from around the world to come and bow down before this king of kings. I'm expecting news to spread like wildfire for a message that would be received so joyfully. When I think of the birth of a king to come, as projected by Isaiah, I am expecting all glory, laud, and honor that you would think would be due to this king. You know, it's, it's funny how we can read statements in the Bible and find that our mind creates these images, these preconceived notions that cause us to expect one to look like we've created in our minds. We do it all the time, don't we? We form these biases. We get information. It comes on in, and we take what we know, and we think about it, and we come up with something. And frankly, when you think about the coming of the Messiah, it's hard to imagine that we could think so grandly and not have thought grandly enough. 
We're talking about God with us. Our mind must not be able to even think of how glorious that would be. I mean, think about it. If if you think about this king to come, this ruler, as described by Isaiah's word, you know, I think of somebody who is of physical stature, Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime. I'm thinking of somebody who is as gorgeous to look at as Brad Pitt or Denzel Washington. You know, somebody that just stops you in your tracks. I'm thinking about somebody that has that deep, rich voice of James Earl, Earl Jones. I'm thinking about somebody who has wisdom greater than Solomon had. I'm thinking about someone whose mannerisms are as gentlemanly as any gentleman who ever walked the earth. When I think of this king, those are the things that I think of. Unfortunately, when I do that, though, my mind is only running on some of the information that Scripture gives us. Because Isaiah gives us more information. These verses about this wonderful birth take place as far as chapter 9. But if you go to chapter 53, you get a much different picture. It completes the image. And I want to read to you some verses because it's so important for us to get not just the rest of the story, but the whole story. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us. Nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Did you catch some of those descriptors? Some of those images that give you a very different picture than this king of kings that we would come up with with our own mindset. This was no gorgeous model of a man, but a man who was totally unremarkable. He was not desired by all, but rather he was despised and rejected. And he wasn't one who was going to inflict pain upon others and subjugate those who would otherwise been oppressors. No, this is one who would take on pain and suffering himself. We would think the Prince of Peace to know nothing other than peace, but 
He knew nothing other than suffering. It was not for the conquering of territory that he would go into battle. But he was bruised and crushed for our iniquities, for our sin. The enemy was not the enemy around us. It's the enemy within us. And that was the battle he came to fight. So, if we are so far off in understanding the battle that he came to fight and who he is, perhaps we should have been expecting a different sort of birth. Perhaps we should have been expecting something that would have been almost invisible to the world around him. And I say almost because this is the birth of the Son of God. It can't be completely invisible. But it won't be nearly as remarkable as I think a king's birth ought to be. I suspect it went something like this. So Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. As nondescript and as simple as that, not even a talk of how many hours in labor, but simply a statement. It was time to give birth, and this child was born, wrapped in cloths, placed in a manger. But this is the Son of God, and so it couldn't simply be left there. There has to be some indication for us that this was a remarkable birth. Mary knew it. Joseph knew it. The angel had conveyed to them that this child was special, the Son of God. But the rest of the world didn't know it yet. So God did at least pull out a little bit of pomp, a little bit of fanfare. For Luke tells us these words as well. And there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared to the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen and were just as they had been told. Praise God for those angels validating what Mary and Joseph had already known. Of course, we know that there was the star of Bethlehem that would be seen by the the Magi 
who came from the east, making their way ultimately to Bethlehem as well. But again, I can't help but 41 years ago, Prince William was born. He wasn't even the king of kings. He wasn't the immediate heir to the throne. He was second in line to the throne. And there was champagnes and shout of joys. There was media camped out everywhere. There was a huge celebration for a guy who was twice removed from the throne. And the world rejoiced. I guess I'll take a company of angels singing, though. And I guess instead of royalty proclaiming it, the fact that the humblest of the humble, the shepherds, were to be the ones heralding the arrival of this king. God's plan was not to come on to be served, but to be the servant. And we see that the Prince of Peace, who rightly will be called Lord of all, didn't come to rule a nation. He never even needed to come down to earth to be the Lord of all creation. Had he never come down here, every knee would still bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord. It wasn't for his exaltation that he came down. He came down because what we needed only he could provide. He came down here to earth meek and lowly because he needed to live a life free of sin in complete and total obedience to God. And he needed to live that life because we can't. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And friends, the purpose of man is not to live your best life today. The purpose of man is not to have the most comfortable life that you can to acquire material goods and possessions and power and surround yourselves with family. The purpose of man is to glorify God. And we do that first and foremost by aligning our lives, our wills with him. And we can't do that because we are so steeped in sin that we need someone who can touch our hearts, transform our minds, renew our lives, For that reason, Jesus came. He came to live a perfect and sinless life to show us the way to connect us with God in a way that we couldn't otherwise have been connected. To die on a cross was his purpose for coming. And as I think about it, that tells me in my mind that that baby should have been celebrated even more grandly upon birth than I can imagine. But that wasn't his way. His ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. He knew that humility was the way that we needed to understand as a path to God. So for that purpose, a humble king was born in Bethlehem, not in the presence of a royal court with an adoring group of people singing and shouting and celebrating. Instead, not even in the inn, because there wasn't any room for him. And so he was simply born and wrapped in cloth and placed in a manger. The fullness of Scripture gives us the fullness of the picture of who God is 
why his only begotten son had to come. Of who we are and why we need to recognize that getting right with God is the most important thing in our lives. For those reasons, Christ was born into this sinful fallen world some 2,000 years ago with humility, near anonymity, the Prince of Peace came into being. As we prepare to celebrate Christmas tomorrow, as we rejoice in all he has done, I want to simply to close with these words Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. He said, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, born that we might have fellowship with him, in him, adopted as sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ of God's kingdom. The greatest gift ever given, the greatest story ever told. Not with the pomp and circumstance that I imagine, but with the humility, the authenticity, and the power of God. His Christmas present to all of you. Merry Christmas.